Trinity Church. It is great to see you today. How are you doing? It's good, good to be back. I have missed you over these last three weeks uh, and able to connect with some folks this morning. The obvious question, how are you? How has that been? And I would just say uh, the elders, when we put this together four years ago, we called it Refresh and Renewal. I feel refreshed and renewed. So I'm really grateful uh, to be back. So I want to thank the elders for putting this together for our pastoral staff. It has come at just the right time for me. And I believe when our other staff members have experienced an R&R, it has been uh, just so life-giving. And so again, I just want to say thank you to them and thank you to you as a church family. I've missed you. It's great to be back. We're continuing in the book of John. If you have a Bible today, you can make your way there. We're continuing in this eighth chapter. This is week three in this particular chapter as we're unpacking this powerful exchange between Jesus and these religious leaders. There's a mixed audience. The, the chapter tells us some who do believe and have put their faith in Christ and others who obviously don't. And we're going to hear a lot more from the don'ts today. But as we get there, we'll kind of be looking for this idea of what does this passage say about us? What does this passage say about the people in our relational world? Those who have put their faith in Christ and those who have not. There'll be much to say about them today. So I'm excited to dive in and look at this uh, with you. One thing uh, you've heard a little bit today, and I love it. I am so grateful. I've been watching the services online just so I could stay up to date. And I saw last week the video about our Team Trinity rally and the one today, Jethro is having a rough time. I love it though, it's so good. Just makes me laugh and, and really speaks well. One of the things about that, I just wanted to add my two cents about even our Serve Expo going on today. I love what Jared said about it. It's really true for everyone. There was a point at which they began. And I would say for a lot of us, there's a point at which we need to re-begin. What happened in the quarantine and the pandemic was as we were watching services at home, some of us began to realize that's not so bad. I used to come to church and I would go to church at one service and serve at another and makes for a long day and now I'm in my PJs, you know? And so in that transition of coming back on campus, and again, I wanna welcome those on the pavilion and those watching online. We value every different expression of how you get to join us in worship. But for those of you here on campus today, there's been this interesting thing that I would tell you is true everywhere. It's not a Trinity Church thing. It's just true of all of us. We have come to this place where we were kind of trained over the course of almost a year that church was attending, showing up, engaging, watching a service. But our experience and our connection to the body of Christ was never meant to be simply just coming in and watching something. It was always meant to be participating and engaging. So I wanted you to know there are ministries and programs that are actually stymied and some not able, even able to re-engage because of a lack of people that are willing and ready to serve. So not guilt, right? I never use guilt as a motivator, but some of us go, oh, I didn't know there was a great need. There is a great need. So God, if you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible is really clear. God has gifted you to serve the body. 
So I just want to encourage you today, after the service, go out to the Serve Expo that's out on the lawn, look at some different needs and some ways that might connect with your giftedness, and we would love to get you involved, and we'd love to have you join us at this rally coming up a couple weeks from now. It's going to be a blast, and it's going to kick off our brand new year together so well. So we are continuing where Bill and Hilke have done a great job in the last couple of weeks of kind of opening up this chapter and helping us see this mounting conflict. And that's what we said this entire um, kind of segment of John 5 through 10, these six chapters were really all about was a, a mounting confusion and unbelief by the crowds, but even a, a group of religious leaders that become enraged and even murderous towards Jesus, and we'll see that really develop all the more today. And what Jesus is doing, though, what I want you to see is not so much the people's response. I want you to keep watching Jesus. I want you to keep seeing the incredible sense of resolve that he has to complete his mission, his in intense sense of confidence in his identity as the unique, one-of-a-kind son of God. And that's the Jesus you've just sung about today. That's the Jesus that we're going to keep on the forefront of our mind and be preoccupied with all throughout this coming week. So he's the one that we want to keep magnifying and look at. Today what we're going to see in this conflict that continues to escalate, we're going to see that um, the claims that Jesus is making about himself are true and he continues to hold to them like we would expect he would. And yet it's going to demonstrate what I've talked about before in other situations and conversations that Jesus has had with individuals in the book of John. He's talked to people who don't have a category, a box to put what he's just said. So they don't know what to do with it. It rightly leaves them deeply confused. Now what we're going to see today is Jesus is going to make it really clear that the unbelief of the religious leaders has nothing to do with the fact that they don't have a box to put what he's just said in. Instead, we're going to see it's much more. It's actually a diabolical uh, inability to believe, to believe that Jesus is the one-of-a-kind Son of God. Because, as we're going to read today, that these religious leaders are children of their father, the devil. Man, that's as intense and as straightforward and as critical as you can be. And so we're going to see this today played out. And I want to remind you as we dive back into John's gospel today, let me remind you one thing that's been good for me to be off these last three weeks is just to be mindful, why do we do this? Why do we keep gathering together? Church is so much more than a worship service on a Sunday, but why do we do this? And, and the bigger aspect of leading at Trinity Church, what are we trying to do? Week in and week out, our goal is to better equip you to live lives all throughout the week that are rooted in Jesus as you're reaching your world. Here's our now what statement today. Recognize that the people in your relational world who are spiritually deaf need God to enable them to hear. Recognize that the people in your relational world who are spiritually deaf, they need God to enable them to hear. Number one in your notes, whose you are determines how you hear and what you say. Whose you are determines how you hear and what you say. Number one, or look in our passage, we're in John chapter eight, we pick it up at verse 42. Jesus said to them, these religious leaders he's having conflict with, if God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? 
because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? And look at this last phrase. Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So we have been walking through chapter 8. We would say for sure the most contentious of any of the chapters so far in the Gospel of John. I think you can make a pretty good case it is the most contentious. And so I'm glad to come back today and finish off this chapter as we see the conflict continue to boil, continue to brew as Jesus is confronting, going nose to nose with these religious leaders of the day. And so in it, we pick up the conversation. Last week, Hilke talked about this idea of the, the people, um, these religious leaders accusing Jesus, you don't even know who your father is. They're making a hit all the way back to the very beginning of the questioning of, of Jesus' birth. And was it an illegitimate birth that had something to do with someone other than Joseph? We know sp supernaturally it did because of the work of the Holy Spirit and Mary. But just note, 30 plus years later, that reputation still sticks with him. That's a powerful thing to recognize and understand. That's what this last comment that was made last week. And Jesus shares these words about his true father. When they're questioning who his father is, he says, let me tell you again, crystal clear, it's the father from above. And he also goes on to tell them who they're father is. We're going to draw upon our study. It's amazing when we go back, the, the first 18 verses of John's gospel laid such an amazing foundation for the rest of the book. Themes that we said would come up again and again throughout John's gospel. And today we see two prime ones. One, that of spiritual rebirth that we looked at back then. And also secondly, that of the father-son relationship between Jesus and the father. And it's out of that father-son relationship that Jesus has been sent by the Father on a mission, and that if this group of opponents, if they loved God, they would receive him. They would see that Jesus is from the Father, and they would welcome him rather than the way that they're responding. Jesus uses the word sent. We know that word much better, not in the verbal form, but in the noun form. It's the word apostle. Apostle, look in your notes. Apostello means to commission. It's sent on a defined mission by a superior. It focuses back to the source of the one who is sending. And I love this last line. It's strongly connecting the sender to the sent, the one sent. So it's this idea talking about this intense relationship that the father has with the son. And as an act of love, as an act of grace, sends him into a fallen world to bring a message. It's very similar to the word we looked at at the end of the month of June. Our last Sunday, we looked at 2 Corinthians 5 about the concept of being ambassadors. 
ambassadors, those sent by the leaders of one nation into another. And, and so here's the process. Jesus is saying, I have been sent into this world to bring a message from the Father. The people who are responding or hearing are questioning that. And it'd be the same thing for you if you were in a different place and someone comes saying, I've come from the Father, I've come from the leader, I've come from the King, and I've come to bring you this message. It's asking the question, is that message legitimate? Is that message really from a messenger or is it from someone or something else? Here's the wild thing that we've seen all along. Jesus has demonstrated a character. Jesus has demonstrated teaching. Jesus has demonstrated supernatural, miraculous power. Everything you think that would come along with the message that, that ratifies or that substantiates what the message is. And yet again and again, they choose not to believe. And Jesus has called upon those proofs, as it were, all throughout, but their stubborn and hard hearts refuse to respond. This is fascinating to me, and a claim when they're still holding on to, you don't even know who your father is. Jesus spins this back, and he says, no, the truth is, you don't know who your father is. You've been mistaken. You believe that you are honoring Yahweh who I've told you is my father and who I've come on behalf of, but in actuality, you're children of the devil. And you can just imagine the kind of what that this group would have felt. Wearsby has a great quote to this idea. It's in your notes. He writes, the worst bondage is the kind that the prisoner himself does not recognize. He thinks he is free, yet he is really a slave. The Pharisees and other religious leaders thought that they were free, but they were actually enslaved in terrible spiritual bondage to sin and Satan. They would not face the truth, and yet it was the truth alone that could set them free. And that's a powerful quote, and, and powerful to think about related to, again, not just religious, Jewish religious leaders 2,000 years ago, but the people in your life. For some of you, that's your story. You had lived life in such a way that continued to reject. There's no way that Jesus is who the Bible teaches that he is. And you pushed back and you held him at arm's length for so long, but then something changed. And that's what we're going to talk about again more and more today. What changed? How did it change? And who was behind the change? Look at this statement that uh, Jesus has just made. He's saying that Israel's foremost religious authorities are not, in fact, children of the God that they serve, but instead, that, and those that they call others to follow, but instead they're actually children of the devil. Question for you, does the devil have children? This is an interesting thing to think about. I'm just going to tell you this, because Jesus says so, he does. <laughs> I'm not going to question that, but it's an interesting thing to think about. We often think about being the children of God, and we see that language all over the Bible, former covenant and new. But this phrase is of great interest, children of the devil. I grew up in the 80s. You've heard that so many times when we were with our kids during this last uh, time away. During our three weeks, the middle week, we went down to San Diego with all of our kids just to get away, and it was just a glorious, rich time together. And one of the things that we would talk about is I feel like I've trained them well because they all love 80s music, right? I've done a good job. That's good parenting. And uh, just, just kidding. It's, I would not call that good parenting. But anyway, 
Um, anyway, um, growing up in the 80s, there was this, this big thing in churches, especially in Southern California, by a guy named Al Menconi. And Al would come to churches and he would talk about the true evils and the, the dangers of, of not just rock music in general, but especially rock artists that really perpetuated and, and put forth, we worship Satan, that, that kind of a thing. And so I went to a couple Al Coney seminars. I'm always going to be indebted to him because my parents were against all things rock and roll, especially and even including Christian rock. And when they heard how bad rock and roll was out there, and then Al Coney said, but man, you should let your kids listen to Petra and Whiteheart and all those groups. I'm forever grateful because my parents turned on a dime and they bought me all the cassettes, right? They're in a museum now. You know what those are. But, um, but I just loved, I was so grateful because I finally got to listen to rock and roll, but uh, in, a much better, in a much better way. Real quick, by the way, I was never going to say this. I was at the movies yesterday, and there is a, a, movie, uh, a documentary coming out in October called The Jesus Music. I'm really excited about this, so I'm just telling you that for no other reason. Um, so, so in that... Um, this is what was interesting. So in my mind, when I'm thinking people who worship Satan, children of the devil, that's where my mind goes. To rock bands from the 70s and 80s that made a thing of it and tried to sell records based on it. And that's where my mind goes. And I'm trying to think of them and the images and the, the language and the lyrics. And I'm thinking of Jewish religious leaders. And I can't put those two together. They don't look anything alike. And yet that's what Jesus has just said. You are children of the devil. So let's unpack that. What is he saying? Who is he putting them in the same category with? Jesus is suggesting that the reason that they are offspring, they, are, they look like their father, the devil, is based on their character. Their character is murderous. We've seen it all over John 6 and 7. They're looking for a way to kill Jesus. When Jesus calls them on it, they back off. Oh, no, 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 not us. But that's what they've, it's been said in the text. But they're also liars. And because they continue to not only heap things onto Jesus that are untrue, but are unwilling to admit or believe the truth, by their character and by their behavior, they demonstrate themselves to be like or offspring of the devil. Now, is that the litmus test? someone who is murderous and a liar, because some of us would go, well, at least on the first one, I'm feeling pretty good. Haven't murdered anyone lately. Lying, eh. or is it something more? Is, is that really the category? It's all about if you're a murderer or a liar, then you're an offspring of, of Satan, or instead, is Jesus kind of referring to a much more latent, much more inherent reality in every human being on the planet? Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us this. As for you, Paul writing to the Ephesian Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When? When you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All, Paul includes himself, and by the way, a former Pharisee. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. That's the expression in this passage, the litmus test. People who lived according to the flesh, gratifying our, our pleasures and desires. Like this last phrase, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
So in Paul's letter to the Ephesian Christians, he says that we were all under the same sentence. That every single human being born into a fallen world, born with a fallen nature, are people who are inherently not children of God, but originally children of the ruler of the power of the air. The Jewish religious leaders were evidencing the same character and behavior that the devil had ever since the very beginning. Murderous liar is who you would say that snake was talking to Adam and Eve. That's exactly what his, uh, his ways were about then and Jesus says continue to be. And we see that every human being born into this fallen world by both nature and behavior evidences that we too have followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In our own natural human state, that last phrase, like the rest, we were by nature, simply the fact of being fallen human beings deserving of wrath. And that's why we've been making so much in this gospel. I believe that when you talk about the good news, the good news becomes great news when you know the bad news. If we just keep saying Jesus loves you as a wonderful plan for your life, that is good news. But to people who don't understand, they actually need him versus an add-on, versus a thing I'd like to try for a while, then all of a sudden the good news just becomes meh. But it becomes great news when I realize it's essential. And I'm powerless to do anything to make myself right with God unless God goes first. We saw this language in John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him what comes to me. Today before you walked onto this campus, our production and worship team was gathering and we prayed for you. And what we prayed for is we prayed for those of you who came in these doors who are out on the pavilion, those watching online. We prayed that God's spirit would be at work in you. For those of you who have put your faith in Christ, that God's spirit would do a work today to exhibit joy and exhibit praise, exhibit conviction where needed, and exhibit wholeness and healing where needed. For those of you who have not yet put your faith in Jesus, maybe something you're checking out, maybe something you're evaluating, our prayer today is that God's spirit would do something and quicken you, wake you up. Because apart from that, there's none of us that are going to be able to make ourselves right with God and come to believe in who Jesus is. Even people who saw him standing in front of him could not put their faith, belief, trust in him apart from the Father doing something in them. That's why I loved when Eric Taunus came back in June. He said that Christians should all have a perpetual TMJ problem just walking around with these dopey grins of I can't believe the awe that God would choose me, the awe that God loves me and has done something in me just to simply wake me up to the truth so that I could respond to it. That should be something that's perpetually going on in my life. And Paul goes on to say, these are the things, this is what... Um, what um, are the next verses from this bad news in Ephesians 2. This is what comes next. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Yay, God. Yay, God. That's why we're excited. It's not because we're so religious. It's not because we're so moral. It's not because we have our act together. Because we don't. It's simply because God in his amazing love and sovereignty did a work in our lives, made something that was dead alive so that we could respond. That's what John has been teaching us throughout his gospel and we're so grateful. We know there's no way we could lay claim to it. What does this mean for the people in your relational world who have yet to respond to the forgiveness offered in Jesus? In your notes, we need to recognize that the people in our relational world who are not yet convinced that Jesus is Messiah still belong to the ruler of the kingdom of the air and need to be quickened. That's that word, awakened. Need to be quickened by the Spirit of God before they can hear and respond to the invitation that Jesus came to offer them. And though that awakening, we keep saying it rightly so, though that awakening is all of God, meaning God is the one doing it, I don't want it in any way for you to walk away today going, good, so I'm just going to wait for God to do things in the people's lives I do life with and hope that happens. Yes, that's something that we are waiting for and praying for, but there's something else that's so amazing that we actually get to be a part of, we get to be a part of this amazing partnership. We said at the last message in June, God has a plan A for bringing his good news into the world. He does not have a plan B. And you are his plan A. Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We get to have beautiful feet. So what do we do in the midst of people in our lives who have not yet been quickened, not yet been awakened by God? We pray for them. We actually put their name on a list so we think of who they are and bring them to mind consistently. And we're praying, God, would you do a work in their life? God, would you quicken? Would you awaken them? Would you bring circumstances that help them realize, help them come to the end of themselves so that they recognize how much they need you? We invest in their lives with authentic love and friendship and kindness. We invite them to things where they might be able to hear this great news of who Jesus is and respond to it. We invest ourselves deeply into their lives because as Rick Langer, when he came a few weeks ago, we do what Rick said that message. When it comes to sharing the gospel, it is rinse and repeat, both here and all over the world. That is what we're committed to as a people at Trinity Church, and that's the incredible privilege that we have. Number two in your notes today, Jesus saves you not only from wrath, but for eternal life. Jesus saves you not only from wrath, but for eternal life. John 8, 47, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly, I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets, yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Powerful question, who do you think you are? 
who do you think you are? So rather than show any signs of contrition or remorse or even listening, the religious leaders come back. And they come back with these powerful statements. The first is a, a, an ethnic slur. Are, are we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and what they meant by that? People in the region where Jesus grew up in Nazareth, in Galilee, called Samaria. They had this horrible, downgraded view of their value and worth because of what had happened literally generations ago when their land was overtaken as the northern kingdom of Israel fell. They were still holding it over their heads, and it's meant to be an ethnic slur. Jesus doesn't even give it the time of day. But then they go on to say, you, Jesus, the Son of God, are you demon-possessed? Think, think of the incredible polar opposite of what they've just said. You being the incarnate word of God, are you being con excuse me, controlled by Satan himself right now? That's the degree of miss. That's the degree of their, their spiritual blindness accusing the Son of God of being under the control of the demonic. They could not have been further from the truth. They simply demonstrate the truth of what Jesus had stated them to be in his previous response to them, spiritually blinded to the fact that God incarnate was standing in front of them. You see, rather than arguing with him, rather than slandering him, Rather than looking and planning and plotting for ways to silence his influence, they should have been on their faces, bowing down and worshiping. This is the kind of miss that was happening that day. They're deaf to who is standing right in front of them. It is Yahweh making good on his promise of Messiah. Carson communicates it well in your notes. Because they cannot truly hear including obey his message, i.e. the thrust of his word. The content of the revelation of the incarnate word, therefore they are unable to grasp the meaning of his outward speech. The flaw is therefore not with the communicator, but with those whose values and prejudices. Hang on to those words, we're gonna look at those again next week as well, whose values and prejudices make them constitutionally unable to hear. Jesus again declares that he's not in this for his own glory, for his own reputation, but for the one who sent him, the one who is shining the light on him right now. That's what it's about. It's about the Father. And in the end, we'll judge those who do not respond to this revelation. Jesus goes on to say that unbelief in him will not just result in the fact, I'm sorry, he goes on to say belief in him will not just result in the fact that he would be a Messiah who would come and bring victory. Their victory they were looking for was short-sighted. It was over Rome. Jesus is saying, I've come to bring victory over even a greater opponent, death itself. Jesus uses the phrase, whoever obeys my word will never see death. I want you to see the connection. We saw it at the very beginning, even though it's at the end of the book. We've been talking about John's purpose for writing this gospel all the way through in chapter 20, that you might believe. I'm writing these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you might have life in his name. So John is all about developing, creating belief in the ones reading this letter, this gospel, us, even 2,000 years later. But in that process of, of what we've seen, John never separates belief from behavior. 
He never thinks that belief is somehow just mental assent. Like in our American culture, and especially our English word belief, we can say we believe in things, but act completely contrary to them and feel no dissonance. John, the gospel writer, could not have handled that. He's like, absolutely not. Belief, and here Jesus says, for those who obey my word, evidencing belief. Obedience is a big part of that equation, and we never want to miss that. Second, Jesus wanted them to understand that salvation was something that he came to offer, and it wasn't merely avoiding the wrath that they deserved, but it was being made right with the Father, that they would have life everlasting, they would be able to finally come home. As we know, by the way, in the book of Acts, all of Jesus' disciples died. They physically died. So here's the question. Jesus, you just said, if people obey your commands, they won't see death. So that seems like a problem. Otherwise, we'd expect them still to be living today. But John, the gospel writer, is connecting a dot to what he's going to write in the book of Revelation, where he's going to talk about a second death. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the death that Jesus is referring to, not a physical death where all other places in the New Testament are all appointed to die. Revelation 20, verse 6, blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the second death is what obedience to Christ warrants, is that that will have no power, no play over them. The Jewish religious leaders, rather than seeking to understand, continue to work out of their biases, continue to throw darts in opposition They say, what do you mean not see death? Abraham and all of our forefathers, they died. Are you better than them? Again, as we've seen so many times in this account, they not only don't have a box to be able to put what Jesus is saying, but we're seeing today there's even a diabolical, demonic reality there that's keeping them from belief. Their last question is a great summary of how they felt about him all along, even when they met him first in John chapter 2. Who are you? What are you all about? We don't get it. Jesus is about to tell them something that's going to send them to a brand new degree of frustration and angst. But before we get there, that's the question that we need to consider today. The question that the unconvinced people in your life are also asking. Jesus who do you think you are? Are you just some contrived religious leader from generations ago that is just passe and someone that does something to be anything in my life? Or are you the reason that people get to continue to proclaim a certain type of morality, a certain type of control over others of us? Or Jesus, are you someone that was really important in my life when I was young, but then life hit? And I've just been trying to pick up the pieces ever since on my own. The people in your relational world are asking that question. And the great news is, is that what we're wanting to do week in and week out is to continue to prepare you, both in your life and in your words, to be able to answer that question when it gets raised to you. Our mission is to help you stay on mission. Finally today, number three in your notes, Jesus clearly communicated his deity. Jesus clearly communicated his deity. 
Chapter 8, verse 54. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know I know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do, do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. This is their response. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I, say to you, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. That would be a modern-day mic drop. We'll talk about it in just a second. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. As Jesus said earlier in this conversation, the Father acts as a witness, verifying that what he's saying is true because he's the one who sent him in the first place. Jesus goes on to say that their father, Abraham, they re he rejoiced at the thought of seeing this day. If Abraham were here right now, he'd be doing somersaults and cartwheels. And how do we know that? We know that all the way back in Genesis 12, when God, when Yahweh said to Abraham these words, 12 verse 1, then Yahweh, L-O-R-D, said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. Watch, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He wasn't talking about an empire. He wasn't talking about some set of rules that would come through the law. He was talking about Jesus. All peoples on earth will be blessed because Messiah is going to come through you. The way that Jesus talks with such familiarity and confidence about what Abraham was looking forward to, it gives cause for yet another miss by the religious leaders. How do you know Abraham? <laughs> How in the world could you tell us what he was looking forward to? You're not even yet 50 years old. You're still a young man. By the way, after now hitting 50, 50 and younger seems young to me. So I totally concur with that phrase. We've seen numerous times in this passage today alone, it's not so much that the religious leaders don't have a category for what Jesus is talking about, but that they're spiritually deaf to what he's saying. So rather than ask him what he means by these confusing, audacious words, rather than giving him the chance to communicate what John the gospel writer began this gospel with, John 1.1, in the beginning was Jesus was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God at the beginning. Instead, they just attack because this dialogue has devolved into a pure argument, an angry debate on the part of these religious leaders who've forgotten what Nicodemus said in John chapter 7. I thought we gave people an audience. I thought we allowed people to say what they're about and what they teach instead of go after them and try to silence them. Jesus tells them something that they couldn't miss, though, and that they could clearly understand. The reason that I know why Abraham looked forward to this day, the reason why I know that I'm, is because I'm the one who created him. I'm the one who made him that promise, and I'm the one who's fulfilling it in your presence. I am. Ego emi. There was no missing 
what Jesus was saying. Not just an emissary sent by the Father, but God himself. It's often the word translated in our Bibles, Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the name that Yahweh used for himself when Moses sees him in a burning bush and, and asks, and God has talked to him and says, who should I tell them? When I tell um, uh, my brother, Aaron, when I tell the people, when I tell Pharaoh, who should I tell them has sent me? Yahweh says, tell them I am has sent you. Not the God who was, not the God who will be, but the ever-present, always existent Yahweh. That is who he is, and Jesus claims that is also who he is. Religious leaders respond by attempting to stone him for blasphemy because they clearly understood this was a statement of deity. And like we've seen in John and other times, it simply comes down, Jesus is absolutely aware strategically of when he's going to offer this life. Don't read Jesus sneaking off or running away as something of cowardice. Jesus is simply waiting until the day, the hour, the time to offer himself for the sins of the world. Religious leaders tried to kill Jesus for claiming to be God. Some of the people in your relational world, they scoff at him and they dismiss him for claiming to be God. But we gather here today and we worship him because he is the great I am. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today as a people who, as we've seen this debate and this angry conversation escalate, we see it come to this point this point where Jesus makes it so very, very clear, for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, I am. We can never confuse Jesus with a good moral religious teacher. We can never say that he had a lot of good things to say, but he kind of was a little bit crazy. We have to take him for all of what he said he was. He said he was the living God. Father, we come before you today and we are so grateful that you sent Jesus with such great mission and purpose into our world to save people like us who had no way to save ourselves. Would we be people this week who have that awe on our faces, completely blown away that you would love us, that you would wake us up so we could respond to this message of grace and mercy? And God, would you give us intent in the same way that Jesus was so purposeful in his relational world, the people he came across, both to train disciples, but as well as to reach, to keep putting this great news out there to individuals and crowds. Would we be those ambassadors this week in our relational world? Would we see that the people in our world can't just simply put their faith in you? They need you to act. And would we pray that you would do a work, you'd break through, if you're here today and you've never responded to this incredibly great news of salvation, redemption, I gotta tell you, uh, God doesn't make mistakes by putting you in certain places at certain times. And if he has been doing a work in you to quicken and awaken you, today's the day. Today you can A, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. Passage we said, saw in Ephesians 2 made it perfectly clear. You can be believed that Jesus, this Jesus we've seen so much today, haven't made much of, Jesus really did live a sinless life. 
Jesus really did die a sacrificial death. Jesus really did. He was supernaturally raised from the dead on the third day. See his choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I put my trust, my confidence, my hope in who you are. And I want to live my life following you from here until you take me home. You can make that decision right where you are. And I pray that if you do today, would you tell someone? Would you tell someone who brought you? Would you tell someone who's been praying for you? Today, I realized how much I need Jesus. Father, we love you. We are so grateful that we do need Jesus and that you provided him for us. We love you and we pray in the great name of Jesus. Amen.